Good morning, church. It's good to be back. We were gone this past week, and we had a great time of equipping on the road. I'll share a little bit in a second, but it just reminded me how much I miss being here with our church family. There's nothing quite like it, being with home and family and uh, grateful. I want to thank the church. Uh, the church was able to send a handful of our pastors, along with myself, to Washington, D.C., and what happened at Washington, D.C. is that we were invited by a pastor, Pastor Mark Dever, at Capitol Hill Baptist to be part of an intimate pastor's conference called The Weekender. And this is where a small, smaller group of pastors from around the world are able to just observe how the discipleship culture is lived out at their church. We're able to sit on seminars and have meals with the elders and the pastors and the other pastors from around the world is it was super edifying. I come back excited and uh, grateful. So thank you, church. And just want you to know this is a group called Nine Marks, uh, which uh, Pastor Mark Dever is the uh, president of. This is a book here that's been heavily influential to me and also our pastors. We're going through this as a pastor's group. And if you'd like a copy, I'll have a, a handful to pass out. I'll be standing in the back exit way after service. And just another note on that, Jonathan Lehman, who is uh, chief editor and main contributor for Nine Marks, Nine Marks is basically a ministry that produces content to help equip healthy churches. This is what, this is what they do. Jonathan Lehman will be preaching here on June 12th, and then P- Pastor Mark Dever will be preaching here on June 19th, June 19th. So the Lord has been super gracious, sending incredible help and just really putting his arms around our church family. Now, Capitol Hill Baptist was six, just six blocks away from the Capitol Hill building, a historic church from the 1800s. And it was interesting as we got to kind of just be in that arena, that environment. And Washington, D.C. is a very unique place where a lot of decisions are made. And just to be six blocks from the Capitol building where Congress meets and where... The president is inaugurated. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So I got to take a walk and see the sights a little bit. And I was reminded about the presidential inaugurations where thousands of people will line the street, if not millions, and millions will be watching on television. And the president of the United States of America will be officially sworn in. And this is what he will swear. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States to execute and carry out what the Constitution says for the nation. And this is where the new president is presented to the nation and to the world. This is important, not just for America, but for other nations as well. And this time will be filled with hope and optimism as if things will get better in our nation and around the world, hopefully. And this is the day, that moment in time after the, the swearing in of the, uh, the inauguration of the president, this is where he officially takes the office as the president of the United States of America. Now, why do we talk about this? Today, out of Mark chapter 1, 9 to 13, to, Jesus is inaugurated. We're going to talk about the Lord's inauguration where he starts out his public ministry. His three-year public ministry starts here in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. And just as you're turning there, Mark 1, 9 to 13, a little bit of context before that, 
John the Baptist was preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist was preaching. John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance for sins. And all of Judea, all of Jerusalem is coming out to be baptized, acknowledging, yes, I agree with you, John the Baptist. I need forgiveness for my sins. And this is where we pick up at Mark chapter 1, 9 through 13. So please rise if you're able to. And if you have your Bibles, read along with me. Mark chapter 1, 9 through 13. There's a lot here. Hopefully we can unpack it well. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would empower us to preach your word with power, with boldness, with clarity. And I pray your spirit would embed your word into our hearts so that we will love your son more. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Mark, the gospel Mark is quite different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. In, in Matthew and Luke, there's a genealogy before Jesus even appears, meaning his family tree. Matthew and Luke have a Christmas story. There are no Christmas stories here in Mark. There's no uh, 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 extensive prologue that the Gospel of John has. We just get right to it. Jesus immediately shows up at the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. So let's get to the first scene here, or the first view at the Lord's inauguration from the water view. Let's take it, let's see what happens at the, at the water view where Jesus was identified with sinners. Jesus was identified with sinners. Verse 9, in those days, what days were that? This is at the height of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist is baptizing thousands of Israelites. The Bible says in, uh, in verse 4, and five, that John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In essence, John the Baptist was saying, you need to repent, Israel. We've been out of step with the Lord. You need to repent. And the Spirit was doing the work, and it says all of Judea, all of Jerusalem was coming out to be baptized. I mean, baptizing in the Jordan River. People are repenting. People are confessing their sins, the Bible says in verse 5 of chapter 1 here. Now, since Jesus, if you know, if you're familiar to Christianity, if you are a Christian, you know that Jesus is a sinless one. You should know that. And so if you're here as a guest or non-believer, Jesus Christ is a sinless one. He never thought a bad thing. He never spoke an unkind word. He never acted unrighteously. He was perfect. And it makes sense why any of us or any Israelite would need to be to confess sins in the, in the Jordan River. You may be wondering, Christians, why did Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? Because this is a different type of baptism than that we know. This is not believer's baptism. This is a baptism to re repent, to admit that you're a sinner. 
So why would Jesus Christ need to be baptized by John the Baptist? That's a question that came to me throughout this week. Matthew 3, John the Baptist wonders the same thing. He goes, no, 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 I'm not going to baptize you. You need to baptize me, Jesus. If anything, you baptize me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Permit it this time so that all righteousness could be fulfilled. Do this. This is the right thing to do. So this is the issue. At the presidential inauguration, the president swears to uphold the Constitution. That's his, that's his, his mission. That's what he's charged to do. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is commissioned by God to obey the Father. So to answer that question, why was Jesus needed to be baptized by John the Baptist? Because to obey the Father. John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, the Father. It's out of obedience. Although it may not make sense to us, why would the sinless one need to be baptized? Jesus goes along with the Father's plan. It made sense to Jesus. Jesus, The Father said so, I obey him. It just makes sense. And this is why Jesus was the righteous one to fulfill all righteousness, meaning he obeyed the Father perfectly, perfectly. And particularly here, this has to do with the the Father's plan of salvation to save you and me. And really, church, listen now. This is one of the greatest acts of humility that the Lord does. Similar to when Jesus washed the 12 disciples' feet, Judas being one of them. This was at that level of humility, church, how the Lord humbles himself and allows John the Baptist to baptize him. Because not only was he obeying the Father, what Jesus was in effect doing was identifying with sinners. Jesus was willing to be baptized by John the Baptist, another sinner, to be baptized in the same dirty waters of the Jordan where other thousands of sinners were being baptized. Jesus Christ was so humble that he came to identify with you and me right at the water view. This is one of the reasons why we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. No one was more humble than Jesus Christ. Nobody. And this baptism would also foreshadow the baptism that he will undergo at the cross. Luke 12, 50 says, I have to undergo a baptism. He was talking about the cross. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I willingly lay down my life for the sheep at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, a sinless one, was treated like a sinner. Ken Hughes writes, Ken Hughes is a theologian, a preacher, writes, because Jesus was sinless, he needed no baptism of repentance. Makes sense. This is what we've been talking about. But in his baptism, he associated himself with us sinners and placed himself among the guilty, not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not for, not for his guilt, but for ours. Not because he feared the wrath to come, but, but to save us from it. His baptism meant the cross. Church, he identified with you and me. That baptism was a monumental event, and John the Baptist knew exactly what was taking place here. 
I mean, John 10, 11, I'm just going to keep repeating the Lord's words. I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. No greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. That moment as his body was splashed into the water, was saying, I'm coming here for you, church. For you and me, sinners. It's interesting as we're at Capitol Hill Baptist, about five blocks away was a Supreme Court building. The Supreme Court, you know, and, and there was incredible activity there. That extra security there, I think you could guess why. There was protesters on both sides of the abortion issue, pro-life, pro-choice. They're yelling at each other. They had signs. And I'm, I'm just walking by, just listening to these things. And as you guys know, as they're thinking about overruling Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion in America in the 70s. It was, it's, we live in a crazy time. I mean, I mean we, we have a depraved, as a culture, depraved mind on the thinking of sexuality, on gender, other things, things that we'd never thought we would even be thinking about. And it's such a polarizing time, isn't it? I mean, at that Supreme Court building, it was obvious. This is a very polarizing issue, very powerful. And I was, I was just observing, and it was very intense. As a Christian pastor, as a Christian, I'm watching this kind of undercover. They don't know that I'm a pastor nor am I a Christian. I'm just, I was thinking, yeah, this is good. This is right, in which it is. Yes, we believe in praying and defending life. Yeah, absolutely. Without a shadow of doubt. And yes, we understand what the Bible says about male and female and gender and sexuality. We understand this about marriage. We, we completely understand this. However, if we're not careful, we lose the spirit of Jesus as we look at people who are opposed to these things. You can start judging these people and saying, these guys, what's wrong with them? See, what is your attitude? What is our attitude towards the lost? What is our attitude when we come across things like this? Do we have the attitude of Christ or the attitude of something else? Remember, at the, at, the, at the waters, Jesus was declaring something very clearly. From the water view, Jesus was declaring, I came to seek and save the lost. At the water view, Jesus was declaring, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. At the water view, Jesus was declaring, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is why Jesus was inaugurated to begin his public ministry. This is exactly why. Because Christians, we need to be guarding ourselves. Yes, there's truth. Yes, there's right and wrong. Yes, there's righteousness. Absolutely, we care about holiness. However, are we praying for the lost? Are we praying for these blinded men and women to see the light? Are we praying for hardened hearts to get softened so that they could believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel that says that we're all sinners and all of us are going to be judged, whether you're on the abortion side or not. Well, we're all sinners. 
And we will be judged. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ says this, that Christ lived the perfect life, came to seek and save the lost, died on the cross for you and me. And at one point, we were all blind to the truth. But by God's grace, we're able to see the truth. This is the spirit of Christ. So right now, if you're sitting here right now, you know you're not a Christian. Understand this. We're pleading with you to turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior. We're pleading to, for you to surrender your old life and to give your life to God, Jesus Christ. We're pleading to, for you to believe that Jesus Christ paid for your payment on the cross. It's not too late. You may be thinking that I'm in the winter of my life. It's not too late, but pastor, you don't know my first 65 years of living. It doesn't matter. God knows. And Jesus was dipped in the water perhaps for you even. You may be wondering, well, you don't understand the things that I'm trapped in, the things I'm doing, the things I've done to people. It's not too grave of a situation. That's how great our Lord is. That's why we stand amazed. How marvelous, how wonderful is our Lord. Amen? Votes, votes are important in Washington, D.C. Public opinion is very important. You could feel it. Just kind of like being living in L.A., you could feel the importance of being relevant socially and relevant in an entertainment world. You feel it here, whether you know or not. But in Washington, D.C., you could see having the right opinion matters because it's got to affect what people think about you. And votes are what gathers a, a, a power and attention, and particularly for presidents. You use electoral votes to decide who becomes the next president of the United States. And that's really man's opinion as you cast your vote for whatever candidate you decide to vote for. But really, at the Lord's inauguration, there's only one, only one vote that mattered. That's the one that came out of heaven as the Godhead shows up at Jesus' baptism to cast his vote. So let's go to the second scene. So at the Lord's inauguration, from the heavenly view, the heavenly view, Jesus was identified with God. With God. Let me read verse 10. Immediately, coming out out of the water, Jesus is pulled out of the water by John the Baptist. He saw the heavens opening and ripped apart. Ripped apart, torn in two. And the Godhead shows up. Jesus is already in the water. God, the eternal son, is already in the water, identifying with you and me. And then the spirit, God, the spirit shows up. And eventually God, the father's voice shows up. See, Christianity is a very unique religion. We believe in a Trinitarian God. And the Bible is very clear that God is three in one. We believe in one God. The Bible in Deuteronomy says the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. We believe this. But we also believe that one God exists in three distinct beings. Three beings who of the same essence, who share the same nature. Three beings who have the same will. They want the same thing, perfectly unified. And all three members are present at the same time. All three eternal members. And this is the Bible's, one of the, the, one of the Bible's greatest, most majestic scenes right here, what we're going to look at, verse 10 and 11. This is it. This is, a, this is Mount, one of the Mount Everest portions of Scripture for us to look into the face of Christ. Where the highest level of authority comes to affirm Jesus 
as the Messiah. While God the Son, Jesus Christ, was in the water, verse 10, it says that the Spirit, like a dove, he saw the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. This is where the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus Christ to do the work of the Messiah. This is where it fulfills what Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, our brother Chris Chen read, where God's son will be the anointed one. This prophet, this prophetic, uh, perhaps a hundred years later, I mean a thousand years later, this prophecy is fulfilled. This is where in Isaiah 42, 1, prophecies of the chosen one, I will put my spirit upon him and I will bring forth justice. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's going to make things all good. Not just in Israel, but throughout the world. And when the Spirit of God came upon Jesus, he accomplished two things. Number one, he identified him as anointed one. Just as a review, Jesus Christ means Jesus the anointed. Jesus Messiah, the Hebrew word for Christ, means the anointed one. Jesus the anointed one. So the anointed one, the, the Savior of the world, needs to be anointed. And here it is where the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, is anointing Jesus and staying on him and also to empower him to do the work that he's called to do as the Savior of the world. And look what happens next. After the Spirit identifies Jesus, verse 11. This is amazing. I'm going to do my best to do this portion justice, but verse 11, this, this is just absolutely amazing. This is like the peak of it all. And, and a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, and you are well pleased. The Father speaks. The Father speaks. The heavens are open, and the Father speaks. I want to be clear here, though. Jesus did not begin to become the son at this point. Jesus has always been the son, eternally But Jesus was publicly affirmed at this point as the Messiah, as the king that will make all things good. Publicly affirmed. This is the inauguration moment now where he is affirmed. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to read 6 through 8. Brother Chris Chan, thank you for reading that. This is a... This is a Trinitarian conversation. The verse where God the Father, God the Son are having a conversation from eternity past. And we get to eavesdrop in that conversation. This is amazing. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. But as for me, the Father, I have installed my King, the Son, upon Zion, my holy mountain. I surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, the Father said to me, the Son, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Meaning the father saying, you're my son. And now you're going to be the king. And I'm going to subdue all the nations. You're going to be the highest authority of all. This is a conversation from heaven here. And the very ends of the earth as your possession Similar thing happens here at the baptism here. The father says, you are my son. You are my beloved son. This is a Trinitarian conversation that people get to hear, and we are grateful that's recorded in Scripture here. He says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. 
This tells us a lot about God here. 1 John 4, 7 says, God is love. We know this. Even the world knows this. God is love. God is love. To have this statement to be true, that God is love, we need to have a Trinitarian God. What do I mean by that? Well, since God is eternal, that means he's existed forever. And also his attributes are eternal. That means he's always been love. He didn't just begin to become God is love when he made man or made creation. He's always been loving from eternity past. Do we understand this? God has always been loving from eternity past. There was never a moment in time where he wasn't love. So the point is this. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need to create us. Or I need to love on a group of people. He doesn't need us. Because he's always had himself. God the Father has loved God the Son perfectly. Who've loved God the Holy Spirit perfectly. And they've been in an eternal love relationship. Perfect love relationship from eternity past. That's important for us to think through this now. You are my beloved son. He's loved Christ from the very beginning, from for eternity past. There was never a point in time when he wasn't the beloved son. And love is what motivated Jesus to be identified with sinners. The son loves the father. He wanted to obey the father no matter what. Love is the greatest motivator of all. And then the father says, in you I am well pleased. Why? Because Jesus is perfectly obedient. He does always, he, he does everything that's pleasing to the Father, particularly to execute the Father's plan to be the Savior of the world. Trinitarian love. Trinitarian love. We'll get back to that in a second, but as I was preparing this sermon, what came to my mind is to our church here, brothers. Fathers, do you tell your children that you love them? Brothers, do you tell your wives that you love them? That you delight in them? Although none of, none of our children or our wives or our spouses are perfect, but do you, do you delight in them? You know, I'm so happy you're my children. I'm pleased with you. I saw what you did the other day. That was really good. I hope right now you're not saying, well, but I'm Asian. I hope you're not thinking, well, I didn't grow up like that. I hope you're not thinking, well, they already know, you know, how, how I treat them. They, they should already know. Well, looking at the Trinity, the Father evidently communicates to the Son that he is, you're my beloved Son. He tells him, I love you. So if the Father treats the Son that way, how should we communicate? See, Trinitarian love communicates love. Obviously, lived out, but our words, our words, our affirmations are critically important. The Bible says the glory of children is our fathers. We have an incredible impact upon our children. More than anybody else, for the, for, for the good or for the bad. It's a stewardship. And maybe you may say, no, I actually don't say that to my children or to my wife because maybe it's been a hard relationship with your own father. Perhaps. 
So as you're sitting there right now, how is your relationship with your father? Your earthly father I'm talking about. He may not even be around anymore. You may be in your winter years as well and, and your parents aren't around anymore. Think back now. Or right now, children or, or youth, you may be sitting next to your father right now. What is that relationship like? This is a critical issue because so much of our identity be, can, can be tied into our earthly fathers. Our security, our sense of worth, our sense of direction, our sense of heritage and history. This is, this is my family line. These are important things. I'm not saying these aren't important, but these are very important things. And as a church, I, I get it. I, I've been around plenty of men that have had good relationship with their fathers and difficult and even absent relation, no, no relationship even, which will put that in the bad category. So, I mean, if you have a positive experience, praise God. We rejoice with you. What a grace upon your life. That, that's an amazing gift. You should thank God. Thank you, God. Not a perfect father. I feel like I, I've had a good relationship with my dad. Not perfect, but good. Not perfect, but good. But we also weep with those who have difficult experiences, painful experiences, experiences that have not fit the expectation. And we all have a father story which describes us. There's no question about that. We, there is that. And I, I've been around some of the most powerful, or some of the more powerful men physically, also financially, and also other things, and there's a wound there, no question. But Christians, Christians, brothers and sisters, those of us that are in Christ, since Jesus came to identify with us in the waters and on the cross, we all share the same father story now. Whatever may have been lacking with our earthly fathers, the heavenly father more than makes up for it. He is the one we look to. And because of Christ's obedience and humility, we're drawn into this incredible love relationship with the father. I want to give you a an insight into this. Turn to John here, 17, one of my favorite chapters. This is John's high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 24. And this is another Trinitarian conversation. We get to eavesdrop on the conversation that the Son has with the Father. <laughs> this, you, we need to know this portion. Because what kind of love do, are we given? Are we like the stepchildren of the Father? Are we like that? Well, let's find out here. John 17, 24. Jesus prays. This is a prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, those whom the Father has given to him, be with me where I am. Jesus wants to be with us forever in heaven. <laughs> it's amazing. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you, the Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. You see that? This is once again reaffirming eternal love relationship between Father and Son. Trinitarian love. God the Father has loved the Son forever. And then verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have, have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known. Why? Why does Jesus want to tell and, and disclose about the Father? Here it is. Comma, so that, 
so that, because, so that the love with which you, Father, love me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is praying right now, Father, will you love them with the same level of intensity and quality that you love me? That's unthinkable. Are we going to be, yeah, we're part of God's family in heaven, but you guys stay over there and, and the Trinity stays over here. No, 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 no. This is unthinkable, church. This is blowing my mind away. I couldn't even sleep last night thinking about this. Where you and I, sinners who, who should have been punished, are adopted, not as stepchildren, but as into the Trinitarian love relationship. We don't get to be gods. We're not going to be gods, but we're part of the family of God. That same love that the Father has for the Son, the same love that the Trinity has for the, uh, the Spirit of God, we get to be part of that. What else matters? I mean, that's a, we're going to spend a lifetime, eternal eternity, in fact, thinking about what that means. So when we're seeing how deep the Father's love for us is deep, Deeper than the ocean, deeper than anything else. It's deep. And John 17 gives us a glimpse into how deep it is. The White House. The White House is the uh, just several blocks down the hill from Capitol Hill. This is, as we know, where the president's family lives. And during the inauguration, this is an interesting thing that I learned. While the inauguration is going on, hundreds of staff members are packing up for the outgoing president, cleaning up, shampooing the rugs, changing the linen, changing the, the, the cushions, installing anything new that the new president wants to have. I mean, they're working. It's, it's, it's time. It's against the clock. But having had the privilege of visiting the White House on a couple occasions, I know security is a top priority. I mean, you have to, the roads are blockaded. You have to go through metal detectors. Uh, there's secret service men everywhere with big guns. They're not hiding it. They're just walking around the lawn as if anything could happen. I looked at the window from the inside out. I mean, th- these windows are, I don't know, a couple inches thick. Nothing's going to get through those things. I mean, it- it's a serious, secure place. They have, you know, supposedly, they have a secret escape route just in case they need to get the president and his family out of there just in case something happens. I mean, so security is a top priority. For the president. And we understand why. But not so with the Lord. Not so with the Lord because, moving to our third point, after the Lord's inauguration the will, at the wilderness view, Jesus was identified with holiness. Turn with me to verse 12 of, of Mark 1. Immediately, he says, there was no parties no presidential balls or galas to attend. It was, Jesus, you're going to work. Jesus Christ was sent to the wilderness for 40 days. That's the number for testing in the Bible. And Jesus was tested and tried during that whole 40 days. It's not like being in the White House. He was exposed to attacks of the, of the environment. Wild animals were there. And most importantly, he was placed into the, into the snake's pit where the chief tempter himself, Satan, was assaulting him throughout those 40 days. And Jesus is sent to the front lines where heaven and hell collide in a battle. And it's interesting right here in verse 12 says, immediately the spirit impelled or drove Jesus into the wilderness. Another question, why did God do this? 
I mean, I just spent a chunk of our sermon time speaking about the love that the father has for the son. Dads, moms, would you send your children into a very dangerous situation? I mean, certainly we like our test our kids in a manageable situation, but in a situation like this, why did, the, why did God send his son to do this? Remember from last sermon, sermon that I got to preach that God does some of his best work in the wilderness. Remember that? God does some of his best work in the wilderness. And as we look at verse 13, let me read that first. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. This word tempted is perazo. Perazo. Perazo could either be translated tempted or tested. All right. It depends on the context. So Satan is tempting Jesus to sin. Where God may be using Satan to test Jesus. Right? So it depends on the motive of the one tempting or testing. And so Satan definitely wants to tempt Jesus to sin to disobey God the Father. But remember this, church. Satan's God's devil. What do I mean by that? Just like as Pastor Terry preached out of Job last week, Satan will be deployed by God to do his will, to do his work. For his purposes. Because in James 1, 13, it says, God cannot tempt. It's impossible for God to tempt people to sin. James 1, 13. However, God uses Satan to test Jesus. And did God test Jesus to learn more about him? Like, I wonder how my son's going to respond to this situation. Well, I mean, as parents, we like to know how our kids respond. No, this ain't it. God already knows the son perfectly. God ex- knows exactly how the son will respond. God is a million steps ahead of Satan here. This is what you call being used here, okay? God is using Satan not for his benefit, but for our benefit to, so that we could see that Jesus is a sinless one. This is exactly right, that why he did that. He is the righteous one. He is the perfect one. He alone is worthy to redeem man, to, le- to demonstrate that Jesus is legitimately the Messiah. Not only was he anointed, not only we had the, the voice of the Father speaking this, now he's sent to prove it in the wilderness. And Jesus proves to be victorious. The Father knew that the Son could handle this. I'm always thinking about this. You know, when you ever think about wilderness scenes, you know, I think back to when I was in the wilderness. You know, and, and this is very significant for me to see, read this. You know, as I think about our church family, you know, as a pastor, you start thinking beyond yourself and your own family. Think about the whole church. And I think about, I'm sure there's plenty of people right now sitting here who are in the wilderness. What do I mean by that? Are you trapped in reoccurring sins? Are you constantly going back to that relationship that you shouldn't be a part of? Are you constantly watching things on the internet that you shouldn't be watching? Are you still getting those same old arguments with the same old people? Are those things constantly happening? Are you having difficulties in your marriage? That's a wilderness period. There's no trust. Can't even look at each other sometimes. Is going to work just like spinning your wheels? You're like, you do, I'm just wasting my time being here. Is that how you feel? Well, Satan wants you to believe a couple of lies. One lie is that you're all alone and no one knows or cares. 
That is the lie. Satan wants isolation. Satan thinks that Satan thought that Jesus was isolated in the in the wilderness. He was wrong. Jesus was never alone in the wilderness. He was there for 40 days. However, he was never alone. Heaven was always with him. The Spirit was with the Lord. And the angels were ministering to him. Jesus Christ was never alone. And not only that, Satan wants you to believe that no one understands or cares about what you're going through. Well, that's a lie. Because Jesus understands exactly what you're going through. I'm going to read through Hebrews here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. This is how we stand amazed. Looking at Jesus the Nazarene. Verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Meaning, Jesus suffered temptation. Jesus suffered the wilderness. So that he could come to the aid of you and me. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus Christ could sympathize with what you're going through right now. Because he went through it. But one has been tempted in all things as we are. Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sinning. Yet Jesus proved to be perfect. Christians, you're never alone. God is with you. Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus sends a comforter who will be with you forever, the Bible says. God is with you, Christians, no matter what. Forever. We're part of this love relationship, remember. He doesn't forget about those who he loves like this. But also, our God has given us the local church. God is with us, but also we have the local church. Christianity is not a privatizing, just me and God. It's just a private thing. No. Christianity is a communal thing. It's a group thing. The family of God, the body of Christ, the flock of God, the kingdom of God, the temple of God. Whether you're just a brick, you got other bricks that make up the temple. You're never alone. God calls us to bear with one another. That means carry each other's burdens. God calls us to pray for one another. God calls us to confess our sins to one another. I had the privilege of being around a seminar president recently and um, out of the state. And um, he was talking to us about how their seminary was hosting this world-class musician. I believe he played the piano. And he put on a concert and all that. And then the president's job was to, the seminary president's job was to pick him up and take him to the airport. So as the seminary president normally does, he just listens to classical music and just incredible music. And as, as this musician stepped into this car, he looks at the president and says, could you turn that off? He said, sure, turned it off. And as he drove, he asked him, why do you not, do you not like that type of music? He goes, I could hear every single mistake that person's making. I can't stand to listen to that. Right? 
This, this musician was so accomplished, so perfect, that he could identify every single mistake, every single misstep. Well, the, the president of the seminary was making a point, and he goes, aren't you glad Jesus Christ, the perfect one, doesn't treat us like this? Jesus is perfect. Jesus sees every misstep, every thought that goes sideways. He knows. He knows. Yet, he deals with you and me as friends. Aren't you glad Jesus is not like that musician? And since Jesus doesn't treat us that way, nor should we treat one another that way. Because what we're calling on in this this mutual help is a two-way street. Meaning God is with us, but also the local church. How do I find support in the local church if I'm going through the wilderness period? Well, one, you must be open with your lives. As Pastor Jeremy talked about, do you have, are you part of informal relationships where you're doing life with one another? That's why we have these four formal areas in hopes that it births informal relationships where you can talk to each other. How are you doing? How are you feeling? And oftentimes, the reason why we don't share is the, out of the fear of rejection, is it not? It's per, like, I could share things in a football context, and they'd be like, all right, you're just like all of us. You're not rejected. In the church context, you may share things here or there about marriage, about thought life, or other things going on. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you, are you fearful that people will back away from you? That is a legitimate fear perhaps that some of us might struggle with. I cannot let them know what I'm doing. Well, Satan wants you to stay isolated, doesn't he? He wants you to stay in that wilderness. He wants you to stay in that dark pit all by yourself to render you ineffective for the kingdom. And the other side of it, the other street is that as Christians in our relationships, are we observing? I remember my, my old mentor, my coach, used to say, just watch your people. They're telling you who they are constantly. Are you watching your people? Are you watching your wife? Are you watching your children? Are you watching all the brothers and sisters in your life group? Are you watching their lives? Are, they, are you watching their mannerisms? Are you watching what they talk about all the time? They tell you who they are constantly. And you do that because you care. You do that because you care. It's a two-way street. And really, that's the pathway to discipleship. If you want to have a discipleship culture, that needs to be happening interpersonally. Yes, we'll have these formal uh, uh, opportunities. Definitely, that's, that's very important. But we're hoping that it launches and births, sprouts up informal relationships with one another. So that we commit to intentional relationships that build Christ-likeness. We're meant for one another. You know, we get to live out the Trinitarian love right now with one another. We don't have to wait till, till paradise here. We, we could do it right now. We're actually, we're called to do it right now. It says love one another. That's another one another that we find in the New Testament. Well, in concluding here, the Lord's inauguration, you've seen what the Lord accomplished from the water view and what happened at the heavenly view. And then now we would just see what happened at the, Wilderness view, how Jesus proved to be perfectly holy. He's holy. He's the one. And just to finish up here, it says that Jesus in verse 13 was in the wilderness and he was with the wild beasts. What's up with that? This is the only gospel that talks about the wild beasts. I'm not quite sure what that means, but as I thought about that, it reminded me of the first man, 
Adam. Where did God place him? In paradise. In the garden with tame beasts where he named them. They weren't trying to attack him. And what happened to the first man, Adam? Well, his, he was given the role to cultivate the garden, take care of his wife, take care of the animals. But upon being tempted, he failed. He failed. He failed. And this time, instead of God driving him to the garden, he drove him out into the wilderness where there's thorns and thistles and hard soil now. And, and instead of being around tame animals, he's around wild animals, exposed to the elements and danger now. God drove Adam and Eve out. That's what happened in the beginning. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was driven into the, into the wilderness with the wild beasts, not into paradise. He left paradise to go into the wilderness with the wild beasts and was tested in a far more harder test than Adam had. And he was, he was found perfect, holy. And what he's doing right now is working to make all things new. What he's doing now is working to transform that wilderness into that paradise where you and me, Christians, get to reside in and we get to be with him forever. That's exactly what he's doing. And he's going to drive us, not into the wilderness this time, he's going to take us and drive us from the wilderness or impel us from the wilderness into paradise to be with him. That's what he prays in John 17. Isn't that amazing? As I think about this, can't you, it's hard not to believe that we have a great Lord, don't we? I mean, what else matters? My encouragement is this, as we sing this next song, after I pray, let's sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's hail him. Let's, let's hear, let's let heaven hear our voice. But also let's let ourselves hear how we get to crown him Lord of all. Let's preach that to one another as we sing out loud, crown him Lord of all. What a response that will be. Someday we're going to be singing in paradise forever. Just like we get to live out the Trinitarian love relationship now, let's practice worshiping and praising God right now here as a church family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible portion of Scripture. Thank you that Jesus, your Son, was sent to humble himself, to identify with sinners. Thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to the Father perfectly. Thank you for suffering the pain on the cross. For a moment, you were separated from the love of the Father. For a moment, you willingly went through that for the sinners that you came to save. Thank you, Jesus, that you have thrust us, you have impelled us, you've driven us into this Trinitarian love relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. Thank you that we are privy to experience the same quality and intensity of love that the Father has for you, Jesus. Only because of your obedience, only because of your humility, we could even claim this. We could even begin to ponder this. Thank you that we've been adopted as sons. We get to have sonship status because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. 
So, Father, I pray, Lord, that your spirit will move us to live in light of this love relationship that we have with you. We just be filled with joy and allow us to just love one another, particularly the brotherhood and the sisterhood. Help us to love one another. That will somewhat resemble what the love will be like in paradise with you. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.